Good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to Carolina Family Church. So glad that you've joined us today on the stream, and we've said it a hundred times already, but very soon we're going to be live in this very room in a couple of weeks. For those of you that may be just tuning in for the message or may catching it later, uh, watching it later in the week. We'll be here, uh, what is it, March 21st? Going to be our first first Sunday in here. Really excited about that. And uh, we are going to be finishing up our series that we started a couple of weeks ago. Jeremy started it two weeks ago. And then I did a message last week. We got this week. Got one more week in the series. And then we're going to kick off a brand new series on March 21st when we get together back here in this room. But the series is called Hungry. And it's not just about physical hunger. Although... It's not about that at all, actually. I was going to say maybe a little bit, but it's not at all, actually. It's about, it's about spiritual hunger, okay? The spiritual hunger that exists inside of all of us. And everybody tries to find a way to fill that, that space. Actually, last week during the message, I didn't even plan on this language, but at some point in the beginning of the message, I used the word spiritual space. And I said it, and I was like, oh, yeah, that kind of makes a little bit of sense. And then I said it like a hundred more times in that message. But anyway, it's that spiritual space inside of our life that we try to fill one way or another and some people try their career and some people try relationships and some people try success and some people try money and they try all kinds of things and ultimately none of that actually works it never fully satisfies us or makes us feel purposeful we get to the end of it and we're like well what's the point of all of this and I also mentioned last week that our family, one of the shows that we're watching, we started binge watching it when I was in quarantine because had the COVIDs, and um, we started watching the show Alone, um, which we, and I mentioned it at the beginning of the message last week too, uh, we're in, we actually watched season six first, which probably isn't a great idea, but we watched season six first, then we watched season one, now we're like in the middle of season two, and hunger is a very big thing, right? And that show, because in the show alone, for those of you that may not be familiar with it, they take 10 people, they drop them off in the wilderness, and they have to survive by themselves, individually, not with the other 10 people, but by themselves. And whoever lasts the longest, um, they, they win like half a million dollars. <laughs> and what we notice consistently with people on that show, though, is that they get out in the wilderness, and they start doing things, and they're building their structures, and they're doing their things, and they get all their stuff settled. And then at some point, inevitably, someone will sit, and they will go, you know what? I'm out here and I've done everything that I came out here to do. Why am I even here? What is there left for me to accomplish? Why am I doing this? And at the end of the day, the only thing left for him is the money, right? That's the only, that's the only carrot on a stick out in front of him. And it's not enough. It's not enough to keep them there because they know that, that that's never going to do what you think it's going to do. It's never going to satisfy you the way you think it's going to satisfy you. Only one thing does. And we talked extensively about that last week, where that satisfaction and purpose and peace comes from. And it comes from doing what our creator designed us to do in the first place. And so we talked about that last week. I want to encourage you to check out that message. We've been talking about how to not only fill our own spiritual hunger, but to help others around us fill their spiritual hunger too. The series has talked a lot about how to share our faith and how to share the good, goodness that we know with the people around us and the purpose and the peace that that brings in our own life when we do that. So the last two weeks, we were actually in basically the same story with two different parts to that story. Jeremy kicked us off and he talked about the woman at the well, which was a woman who had nothing. And, and Jesus wasn't even supposed to be talking to her, but he talked to her about faith and it radically changed her life. Last week, I talked about the people that she went and told and the impact it had on them and what Jesus had to say to his disciples about those people that were coming to him. And the hunger aspect of all that went along with that. So we've been looking for the last two weeks at someone who heard the good news from Jesus, 
who had nothing. This week, we're going to look at somebody who heard the good news from Jesus who had everything. And what the reactions were like surrounding this situation where Jesus offered hope to someone who everybody else perceived to have it all together or something like that. So we're going to go to the, the Gospel of Luke. If you have your Bible, whether that's on your app or wherever, if it's a print Bible, go to the Gospel of Luke. It's in the New Testament. And um, we will put it up on the screen for you as well. But I want to encourage you to have it and look at it in an actual, you know, either in a, on your device or in a print Bible because you want to get used to looking at what's around it and all of that. And you can do some further research when you do that. So We're in Luke chapter 19, and we're going to meet someone that if you've been around church for a long time, like if you grew up in church and you went to Sunday school and camp and you did all that kind of stuff, you're going to know this guy, all right, because he's got a song, and we'll get to that later, all right, but he's got a song, and I bet some of you are going to sing the song as soon as you hear his name, but we're in Luke chapter 19, and uh, we're going to start verse 1 right at the very beginning of the chapter, and uh, it's not a long story, it's about 10 verses, and we're going to look at all of them today. And what I'm going to do, by the way, just for those of you that may be listening to this um, so you don't get confused, I am going to read a little bit and then talk about what's going on and sort of break it up. So uh, it will help if you're listening to this, have a Bible in front of you so you know what is the Word of God and what I'm saying because you don't want to get those things confused. So anyway, Luke chapter 1, hopefully you've had time to get there now that I've tread water for a bit. Luke chapter 19, verse 1. Okay, then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now, if you have some familiarity with the Bible, the the city of Jericho will sound very familiar to you. I think there's a song about that too, isn't there? There is. Yeah, because in the Old Testament, when Israel was going into the promised land, they had to go through the first city was the city of Jericho, and it was highly fortified, and God had them march around the city for seven days, and then they blew the trumpets, and the walls came a-tumbling down. That's the song, and the walls came tumbling down, something like that. All right, yeah, so that's the city of Jericho, same city. It's very close to Jerusalem, So Jesus is actually on his way to Jerusalem for his final week. He's going to enter into Jerusalem with the triumphal entry. He's going to teach and have a lot of run-ins with the Pharisees, the religious leaders. He's going to be crucified on Friday. He's going to rise again on Sunday ish thereabouts. Okay. And uh, so he's on his way to Jerusalem for that sort of that last week. And um, he is, has to go through Jericho, which is 17 miles outside of Jerusalem. So he's pretty close. And interestingly, Jericho housed, it was the home of half of the priests of Israel. So half of all the priests, Pharisees, scribes, they're all here in Jericho, which makes it a hot spot for Jesus. Okay. So he comes to Jericho in verse two. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. You already know what the song is if you, if you did the Sunday school and the, the, the church camp thing, right? All right, and uh, we'll get there. I'll sing it. Don't worry. Now behold, I know you were worried. Can't wait, right? Yeah. Um, so now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Now, in order to understand what's going on here and what's about to happen, you need to understand the culture of the day a little bit. And the reality is, well, some things haven't changed. <laughs> They didn't like the tax man. They didn't like him at all. And you may not be a big fan of the IRS, you know, in our our country, in our culture. But it was worse then. And the reason it was worse is because tax collectors in that day, because they were under Roman control, were viewed as traitors. 
first and foremost, because their tax collectors were usually Jewish people. And Zacchaeus is definitely a Jewish name. So he's a Jewish man who lives in this area, who's working for the foreign government that is taxing the people there to death. So they are not a big fan of the tax collectors. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples was a tax collector. His name is Matthew. He wrote a gospel, the first gospel in the New Testament. His name was Levi previously, and he was a tax collector for the Roman government. And Jesus called him to come follow him. Well, Zacchaeus is not only a tax collector, he is the chief tax collector of the area. He is the middle manager of the entire region for the Roman government. And Zacchaeus, so he's, he is a Jew who is taxing his people on behalf of the foreign government that is controlling their area. And not only that, but tax collectors were notoriously corrupt. And nobody would check up on them. The Roman government didn't even really care if they did it. So what, he, what they would do is they would go to someone and they would assess the taxes on them, but they would inflate their net worth. They would inflate their earnings. They would inflate their, tax, their taxes. And then they would cut back to Rome, what Rome was supposed to get, and they'd pocket the difference. So they were corrupt. They were ripping people off hand over fist. And not only that, but Zacchaeus is doing it, but Zacchaeus is the one who's teaching all these other tax collectors to do it too. So he's, he's that, he's the like, the, the slime ball CEO, not a CEO, middle manager who's sitting in their corner office and forcing everyone else to do this seedy, disgusting, traitorous work among the people. I mean, for the people in this area, particularly religious people who consider themselves pious and holy and, and all that, a man like Zacchaeus is the worst of the worst, and he was getting rich off of it. He's one of the wealthiest men in town, most likely. And so they hated him, hated Zacchaeus for all of those reasons. Maybe you can even think of someone in your life that you might put in that same category. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a boss or a public figure or somebody that you think is just this greedy person who's causing all kinds of problems and just out for themselves and, you know, you know, working against you or your community or your family or whatever. You know, I feel that way sometimes about customer support with big companies. <laughs> I have battles. I have battles. I've fought. I fought and I've lost because... It's hard to fight against a big company like that. Anyway, um, so anyway, they hated him. That's the point. All right, here we go. Verse three. This is where it gets, we're getting to the kind of the fun, funny part of the story, right? Verse three. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. That's a nice way to put that, I suppose. He's a little guy. He's a little guy. All right. He was of short stature. So what did he do? Verse four. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus for he was going to pass that way. What a story. This guy, he couldn't see over. The, this is like when, this is like when Thomas Jacobison sits down front at church, right? <laughs> and so you got to go up into the bleachers. That's what, that's what that's like, right? He couldn't see. So he climbed up in a tree and there's a song that, we, that if you grew up in church, you probably sang this song and it goes a little something like this. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And when the Lord, he passed that way, he, something, he looked down from that tree. Is that right? Yeah. And, and Jesus said something. Anyway, I forget Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today, for I'm going to your house today. Zacchaeus, I looked it up, but then I just couldn't remember it. 
Uh, then Zacchaeus was a very happy man or something. There's like a verse that goes after that. Anyway, point is, it's a funny story because the dude was short and he couldn't see Jesus. So he climbed up in a sycamore tree and I actually have a picture of a sycamore tree to show you so you can see what this is. In fact, this is a sycamore tree in Jericho that is often called Zacchaeus's tree. All right. Now, is it the tree that Zacchaeus actually climbed up into? Who knows? We don't know. But it's the kind of tree that he would have climbed up into in the town that he did climb up into a tree. So that's just to kind of get in your picture. A sycamore tree has these big, huge, sprawling branches. Big, huge, wide, sprawling branches. Would have been fairly easy to climb up in and kind of lean out over the crowd and what's going on. And so that's what he does. That's where we're at. Now, verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus. Make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Now, a couple of things that I think are interesting here. First of all, Jesus didn't ask permission <laughs> of Zacchaeus. He said, dude, I'm spending the night at your place. Jesus didn't have a house, by the way. Didn't have a place to lay his head. He warned people about that. But he says he had to, he had to, he was a you know, couch surfer. That's what Jesus did. He would, he would stay with people as he went along and did ministry. And he sees Zacchaeus up in the tree and he says, dude, you're the holiday in today. I'm staying with you. And what I think is interesting too, he knew his name. So how did he know his name? Was that because Zacchaeus had a reputation? Is it because Jesus had met him before? Is it because Jesus had, you know, knowledge through the spirit of exactly who this guy was? And, you know, Jesus is God, yet he gave up his godly powers and humbled himself and became a man. So it's like, how did he know? Oh, I don't know if that matters, but he knew. <laughs> and he saw him and he told him to come down and he said, I'm going to your house, man. All right, come down. So verse six, um, verse six. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. So Zacchaeus received Jesus joyfully to his house. Seven. But when they saw it, they all complained saying, he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Ooh. So Jesus does this, and they all complain. Now, who are they all? They all are they all. It's everybody. <laughs> there's, no, there's no distinction here over who was complaining. It's the crowd. It's the, the priests that are there. You know, they're, they're flush in Jericho with priests. It's the priests who are watching Jesus walk through town. It's the average people that are at the side of the road watching him walk through town. It's his disciples. It's got to be all of them. It says all of them. They are all upset about this. They do not want to, Jesus to spend the night at, at Zacchaeus' house. In fact, the disciples probably don't want to spend the night there themselves, eat dinner there and, and whatever. They don't want to do it. They don't want to do it. Why don't they want to do it? Why are they so mad about this? You know why they're mad about it. They can't stand the guy. They can't stand the guy, and they don't think he deserves it. I mean, there's, there's hundreds of other people in this town. Why would you choose to stay at Zacchaeus' house? I don't know. Let's find out. Verse 8. Then Zacchaeus stood and said, before the, said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. This is a big step. This is like, this is crazy. This is, this is a, a complete 180 for a guy who is greedy. He's made it his career, his lifestyle, his reputation, everything. To all of a sudden, he sees Jesus 
He, sees, he wants to know what Jesus is all about. He sees Jesus. Jesus has come down. I'm staying at your house. And now all of a sudden, he is ready to completely flip the script on his entire life because he met Jesus. Somebody that certainly nobody thought could change stands up in front of Jesus as his witness and everybody else who's listening, of course, because I'm sure there's a ton of other people there. He says to Jesus, I will, I'm going to give half of everything I have to the poor. And the Jewish law required that if you were going to make restitution for having wronged someone, that you're supposed to give them the principal plus, uh, what is it, 20%. Principal plus 20% would be proper restitution to someone you had wronged. But he says, no, no, no. I'm going to give them the principal plus 300%. Goes way on beyond. In fact, he might have, by the time he was done with all the people that he cheated and all the people that he wronged, he might have been completely broke by the time he was done. Giving half of it away and then paying all that restitution back. This is crazy. This is unbelievable what he, what he chooses to do. And then verse 19, and Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, I think a bit of clarification is important here for us to, to not get the, the cart before the horse in this situation. Salvation didn't come to Zacchaeus' house because he give, gave half of his stuff to the poor or because he made a commitment to give fourfold back. He committed to give half of his money to the poor and to pay fourfold back to anyone he had wronged because salvation had come to the house. Salvation came through his belief and trust in Jesus, not through the act, but the act was demonstration that his faith was real and was present. Right? That's, that's why he calls him a son of Abraham. Because one of the things we learn about Abraham, Abraham, of course, is, is from the Old Testament. There's an entire chapter, Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament, that it's about what faith was like back then. And Abraham did a lot of faithful things and did a lot of incredible things, but it was his faith that saved him, not his actions. His actions were demonstration of the faith that was there. Right? That's why Jesus calls him a son of Abraham, because he is demonstrating his faith by his actions. All right, we want to be really clear about that. And then in verse 10, Jesus said, for the son of man, Jesus is referring to himself. It's one of his favorite ways to refer to himself. The son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. What an incredible story. I mean, this is just a total, complete transformation, a complete makeover. And I think about that. And what, how incredible it must have been for everyone around to see what happened in front of them. To see this, this unfold. This something they never thought could ever be possible. They were in fact mad about it. There might have been some people who were mad after the fact. You see that sometimes in scripture too. People are mad that someone came around because they don't think they deserve it. This is unbelievable. And I think about my life and I hope you think about your life. And to say, I would love to see a transformation like that happen. So to, around me, in my life, somebody that I think is completely lost and completely without hope and completely gone, just, just a foregone conclusion, they are never going to accept. I would love to see them make a radical transformation and to participate in that, to experience it and witness it and be a part of that. And so I want to talk today about how that can happen, how we can see those kinds of transformations happen around us and we can participate in them. And so today I want to talk about how to see unseen hunger. How to see unseen hunger. Because Zacchaeus was hungry for Jesus, but nobody else could tell. Nobody else could see it, but Jesus did. 
So how do we see unseen hunger? And this may go for really anyone, but particularly we want to think today about the hard case, so to speak. All right. The reality is, if Jesus had not come along, who would have ever said anything to Zacchaeus? Nobody. If Jesus hadn't come along, nobody would have ever said anything to Zacchaeus. In fact, they're mad that even Jesus did. They didn't think he deserved it. And I really think that this is, this is interesting because the interaction that, that Jesus has, where you, Jesus meets someone, and then they make a total change in their life. It's the same as the woman at the well but that we talked about for the last two weeks, but with Zacchaeus, it's like the other end of the spectrum. And it's really unique and really rare, by the way. The reality is, um, and, and this is often talked about in ministry circles, it is a lot easier to share the gospel with somebody who is poor, who is destitute, who is hurting, because it's easier for them to see their need for a savior. It's easier for them to see their need for Jesus because they don't have all this other stuff blocking the way. But it is really, really hard, really hard to get someone who is rich, accomplished, well-known, successful, all of those things. It is really hard to get them to see their need for the gospel, their need for a savior. And so when this happens, it is far more uncommon, but it has an incredible impact, incredible impact when it happens. And it's really interesting to me when we look at the story of Zacchaeus, the way things unfold. I mentioned earlier that when you have your Bible and you have it in front of you, whether it's, you know, digital or print or whatever, that you naturally can look easily around what you're reading. And that's important when you're understanding the context of something in Scripture. And it's easy to take a story like Zacchaeus and to just read it from verse 1 to verse 10 and, and copy and paste that out and put it somewhere and, and or to read it on the screen, you know, at church or whatever, and not to see what's happening around it. But really fascinating what happens right before Jesus has this interaction with Zacchaeus. He's walking through town and there's a blind beggar. And the blind beggar comes to Jesus and he says, you know, help me. Jesus says, what do you want? He said, I want my sight. And Jesus gives him his sight back. And then, and then this happens. This is the verses right before what we just read, uh, Luke chapter 18. This is back in 18, verse 42 and 43. Then Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, all, these are the same all the peoples, right? These are the same all the peoples that were really mad about Zacchaeus. All the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So they were stoked about the blind beggar who accepted Jesus, but were so angry about the tax collector who accepted Jesus. Why? I, I think that Luke puts these two things back to back, not only because they happened very close to each other, but he wants us to see the contrast between these two things. Because I think this is human nature to be excited and to look for the person who's hurting, who's destitute, who's poor. But to not think that the person who's rich or evil or greedy or whatever it is, that they deserve it. And so we're not even going to bother with them. We don't think that they should have that. I think that he did that on purpose. And so I want to talk about how to see, see unseen hunger. 
And the first thing that we need to do is we need to reject surface judgments. We need to learn how to look at people the way that Jesus looks at people, not to look at the people the way that people look at people. Not to look at people the way that the world or social structures look at people. We look at people the way that Jesus looked at people. We have a tendency to try to decide who deserves the gospel and who doesn't. And so maybe there's someone you could think about even in your own life that you would put in the same category as Zacchaeus. Maybe it's your boss. And you don't like the way that they treat people. You think they belittle, they belittle people or they're demanding or they get angry easily. You feel like you're always on pins and needles. You feel like that they take advantage of you and, they, and all of that. And you're so angry with them. And so you would never even think about sharing your faith with them because if, even if it's not in the front of your mind, it's in the back of your mind that they don't deserve it. That they don't deserve it and or, well, they would never be interested anyway because all they care about is themselves. We write people off and we have to intentionally learn not to do that. To see people the way Jesus sees people. Maybe it's not your boss. Maybe it's your teacher. Or maybe it's a politician or an entire political party (laughs) for that matter. Maybe it's a celebrity. Maybe it's your neighbor that you're always having issues with and they're the enemy. And because they're the enemy, you just don't think they deserve it or they would ever be interested. Maybe it's a classmate. We're, we are humans. And humans naturally want mercy for ourselves and judgment for others. It's the way we're wired. Mercy for ourselves, judgment for others. But we have to learn to see people the way that Jesus sees people. And the reality is we look at people and we decide that whether they deserve it or not, And nobody deserves it. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. Nobody deserves the gospel. Nobody deserves to be forgiven for our sins. That's kind of the whole point of grace, that we couldn't possibly deserve it even if we tried. Even if we lived the best possible life that we could live, we would never be able to earn our way into God's grace. It's given to us freely. God is merciful and he's gracious. And he offered Jesus Christ on the cross for everybody. Everybody, and none of us deserve it. All we have to do is come to a point where we realize that we are sinners and put our faith in Jesus for salvation. He died on the cross and he paid for our sin. And for those of you that may not, maybe you're just realizing that today for the first time, you can put your faith in Jesus right now and be saved. No matter what you've done in your past. You haven't deserved it. You can't deserve it. You never will be able to deserve it. It's given by grace. And so right now you can say, Jesus, I believe in you and I trust in you for salvation. He died on the cross to pay for your sin and he rose again on the third day. And there's not a single one of us, whether it's you who believes it for the first time today or whether it's me who believed it for the first time 35 years ago, I didn't deserve it then. I still don't deserve it today. It's given by grace. So who am I to decide who else would deserve it? Say this person needs it, this person deserves it, and this person doesn't. I'm nobody to do that. I didn't deserve it, and God didn't write me off, and you don't deserve it, and God doesn't write you off, and your boss or your classmate or your coach or your teacher or your neighbor or your customer service, they didn't deserve it either. But it's available. It's available. How could we accept grace for ourselves and then expect everyone else to earn it? That doesn't make any sense. 
We have to learn to see people the way Jesus sees people. We have to learn to reject surface judgments. It's so fascinating to me that not only did Jesus deal with Zac, uh, Zacchaeus, but he saw him in the first place. And that's a little mind-boggling. I don't know if you've, if you've ever really thought about that as you, as you go through Scripture, but it catches me from time to time. Where there, is, there are like throngs of people here. It's a mass of people. That are, that are surrounding Jesus and following him down. It's not, like, it's not like, by the way, it's not like the Christmas parade. It's not like the Christmas parade where like everybody was lined along the sidewalk and then Jesus was just like, he was on the last float like Santa Claus and like his disciples were walking next to it with balloons and stuff. It wasn't a scene like, like this is, me- this is chaos, okay? Jesus is walking down the street, yes, but he's just completely surrounded by a mass of people pushing in, pressing in, trying to get his attention, trying to get him to heal them, trying to get him to teach them. All these people, People that want all of these things from Jesus, like the blind beggar that he just had verses before what we just read. Oh, they're looking for something, they're looking for something. And in all of that mass chaos, Jesus looks up and sees Zacchaeus in a tree and calls him out singly. Why? Because Jesus knew what needed to happen in his life. It never ceases to amaze me in scripture when you see that happen. There's a story where Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda and there's all these people that are hanging out around this, this pool because they believe that there's an angel that comes down every now and then dips its wings into the water. And when they dip their wings into the water, the first person who gets into the pool is healed instantly. So this lame man, this man that can't walk, is there at the pool hoping to get into the water. But Jesus comes up and he says, what's the problem, man? And he's like, hey, like the angel comes out here and does this thing and I can never be the first one in because I can't walk. So I'm here, but somebody always beats me in. And Jesus is like, okay, well, take up your mat and walk then. And he heals the guy. And it's unbelievable. And then Jesus kind of like disappears. It's like a ninja movie. He just kind of disappears. He's gone. And, and one of the things that always strikes me about that story is that there are presumably hundreds of sick people around that pool. And, but Jesus picked out this one. Why did he do that? Because he wanted us to see something. Because he wanted us to learn something. Because he wanted to teach something. Because he knew what was going to happen as a result of that person's Faith. And in this case, we look at Zacchaeus and he picks Zacchaeus out. And I think it's very intentional. It's very purposeful. He knows, I don't know exactly how he knows all that he knows and what, you know, it's like there's a constant like mental game because Jesus, uh, he gave up his godly powers. So he didn't have all of that, but he had some of it. And I don't really know how it all worked. But he was able to see Zacchaeus, know Zacchaeus, and I think know where it was going to go which is why he was so direct about it. And I know this about Jesus. I'll tell you what I know for sure. I know that Jesus Christ is part of what we call the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are one God, but they are three persons. And I don't fully understand how exactly that works, but they are completely intertwined with one another. And Jesus, walking on earth, even in his, full, in his human form, had a, per, had a perfect relationship with the Spirit. Perfect. And so I believe the Spirit empowered and led a lot of what Jesus did. I think the Spirit gave him eyes to see these kinds of things. And what we believe, what we know, in fact, is that the same Spirit is present in the life of a believer, somebody who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. God gives us the Spirit. And now we have this battle that we wrestle between following him and him empowering our life and still trying to use human effort and wisdom and knowledge to empower our life and living in the flesh versus living in the spirit. Constant battle that we read about in scripture and we see in our own life. 
Jesus didn't have that battle. He, he listened to the spirit. He did what, what uh, he showed him. And, and so maybe it was the spirit that gave him eyes to see Zacchaeus and to know the deal. And if the spirit in fact did that for him, then the same spirit that did that for Jesus lives in me and lives in you and can give me those same eyes. That he can help me to see past the barriers that might exist between me and someone else and allow me to see them with spiritual eyes instead of human eyes. So this is something we need to pray for. It's something that we need to, we need to look for. We need to listen when we hear it. This is actually something that I, I, I talk about often. Uh, often when we start, huddle up, I remember back, back in the old days when we used to actually meet together in the same place, we would huddle up with our team beforehand and we would pray and we would talk about what was going on that day. And then we had this chant thing that we would do together. Uh, and, uh, not a weird thing, but a cool thing. And, uh, we would do this chant together. Yeah. Not like a cult like thing, like a, like a normal thing, like a cool thing. And, um, so we would, it's just to focus us and, and get us, get us ready for the day. And, um, I would often pray this that God would give us spiritual eyes as a church that, and as team members so that when someone walked in, we would be able to see past what our assumptions might be about them or see past what sort of veneer or uh, facade they might be putting up when they come in so that we can see past that to see what's actually going on in their heart. And we need the spirit to do that because humanly we can't. And, but I believe the power of the spirit within us can help us to see those things and be, um, be sensitive to them. So we need to reject, um, we need to, let me get the wording right. We need to reject the surface judgments. And second, we need to ask for spiritual eyesight. We need to ask for spiritual eyesight. You have to ask for it. You have to pray for it. And you have to respond to it when he gives it to you. Or you'll miss it. You'd just be another short dude up in a tree, blending in with the rest of the crowd. But because Jesus had spiritual eyes to, to, to read past all of that, he was able to see something incredible happen. And so you need to pray for it. And I want to encourage you to pray for it. Specifically say, God, give me spiritual eyes. Help me to see the unseen hunger in people's life. Help me to see what I've been missing. Help me to see what everyone else has been missing. And to tap into something deeper that you can see, but I haven't been able to. God, give me spiritual eyesight. And you will begin to see things differently. There are a lot of people that look really tough on the outside, but they're dying inside. And we need spiritual eyes to see that. Zacchaeus was ready. He was looking, but nobody saw it except Jesus. Because they were looking with natural eyes, and he was looking with spiritual eyes. There's another thing I think that is really interesting about Zacchaeus in this story and why Jesus may have been looking for him specifically, why he may have singled him out. If you, if you look around in the Bible, you know, right before what we just read is the story of the blind beggar. Right before that, Jesus predicts his death and his resurrection. Disciples don't understand it, goes over their head. But right before that, so this is the story before the story, Jesus has an interaction with someone we call the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, I want to follow you. What do I need to do? And Jesus said, you need uh, to follow the law and the commandments. Have you done that? And the guy was like, yep, check, done that. Follow all the law and commandments, right? I mean, not true, but yeah. I mean, he thought so, right? He thought so. He thought he had nailed all of that. And Jesus was like, oh, well, there's one thing you're missing though. 
you're rich, you're a rich dude. You need to go sell everything that you have and you need to give it to the poor. Because Jesus knew what was really in his heart. He knew the greed and pride and all that was in his heart, even though he thought he had followed all the commandments. And the Bible tells us that he went away sad because he was a rich man. Translation, he didn't do it. Couldn't do it. Wouldn't do it. And then Jesus has a conversation with his disciples and he talks about wealth and wealthy people and uh, how hard it is for them to accept. And they're like, well, golly, like who could be saved then? And Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why does Jesus point out Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus is the camel that goes through the eye of a needle. He's the one who does it. He's the one who understands that it's his faith in Jesus. And then his faith leads him to action. And he does give away probably everything that he has. Jesus wants them all to see that it is possible. They didn't think it was. He just had someone walk away for that very reason. Like, no, look, if this guy can do it, if this guy can get over all that pride and all of that greed and all that arrogance and accept Jesus, anybody can. Zacchaeus is an incredible example to us of the kind of change that can happen in someone's life simply by meeting Jesus, by seeking and being hungry. We need to be looking for those people because they're not going to be obvious. Pride is a strong thing. It is a powerful motivator and it can hide a lot of things. It's amazing. Zacchaeus was spiritually starving. And Jesus was the only one who was willing to feed him. There are people in your life that are spiritually starving and you have to be willing to feed them even if no one else will. And so I want to encourage you to do the same thing that Jesus did, and that's to make a brave move. Make a brave move. It's a brave move to cross the spiritual boundary with someone in your life that you have hated or resented for a very long time, to change the tone of the relationship, but to take that step. It feels like stepping off the edge of a cliff in many ways. But Jesus was willing to look up at this man who was in the tree when everybody around him was telling him to stop and wondering what in the world he thought he was doing because they didn't want to go there and they didn't think he should go there. And he went there anyway. Who cares? What could you possibly lose? But what could you possibly gain? And so Jesus was willing to make a bold move to go stay at Zacchaeus' house. And look what happened. The story of Zacchaeus, although this is all we read in Scripture about Zacchaeus, the story of Zacchaeus does not stop there. We know a couple of things about Zacchaeus historically. History books tell us this. Research and study have uncovered this about Zacchaeus. Even though this is the last time that we see him here, you may even wonder, it's interesting, um, that the story of Zacchaeus was recorded in the Gospel of Luke, but it's not recorded in Matthew, Mark, or John. And I was wondering about that as I was doing research and looking around and figuring things out. Why is it included in Luke, but it's not included in Matthew, Mark, or John? Usually, a lot of stories in Scripture are included in two Gospels or more, you know, depending. You know, John wrote a little bit differently, so his is a, his is a little bit, has includes some different things. But why? Usually, you can find something in Luke, it's going to be, you're going to find something similar somewhere else. Why? Well, 
The Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts were written by Luke, who is, he wasn't there with Jesus, okay? He's, he's a historian. It's what he is. In fact, he's a physician by trade. He's a detailed guy. And he was hired or contracted or whatever, encouraged by this guy named Theophilus to write the Gospel of Luke, which is about Jesus' life. It's a historical record of Jesus' life. And the book of Acts, which is a historical record of the Acts of the early church, okay? And the, and the apostles. So he was hired by this guy named Theophilus. And in fact, if you look at the beginning, if you have your Bible and you want to turn there, you can look at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is dedicated to Theophilus. So who's that guy? Theophilus was the bishop of a town called Caesarea, Caesarea. It's on the coast, you know, on the Mediterranean coast. Beautiful, beautiful. One of these gorgeous, like, almost like Greek-looking cities. You know, it's a really, really beautiful place. But Theophilus was the bishop of Caesarea. But before Theophilus was the bishop of Caesarea, a guy named Cornelius was the bishop of Caesarea. Cornelius was the first Gentile who was baptized into the church. But before Cornelius was the bishop of the church in Caesarea, the very first bishop of the church was, can you guess? Zacchaeus. That's right. Zacchaeus gave half of his wealth away, paid back what he owed anybody he had cheated, moved to Caesarea and became the pastor of the church. And then Cornelius was the pastor after him. And then Theophilus was the pastor after him. So when Theophilus commissioned Luke to go and write the gospel that we know is the gospel of Luke, why did Luke include Zacchaeus in this story? It would have meant the world to Theophilus. Would have meant the world. They would have already known this story. Not new news to them. So Zacchaeus completely turned his life around. He went from being the most hated person in town, a traitor who ripped people off on behalf of the Roman government and himself, to being the pastor of a church. This is unbelievable. Because Jesus made a brave move. You just, nothing ventured, nothing gained. If, you, if we aren't willing to share the gospel with people that we may not even think deserve it or may not even be receptive to it, we'll never tap into that hidden hunger that exists in their life. And when somebody who is so hard and so cold turns their life around to accept Christ, the results are incredible, are just as dramatic as the change. And you could be a part of that. We have to reject those surface judgments. We have to look with spiritual eyes, ask for spiritual eyes, and we have to make a brave move. You know what we call people who run towards danger so that people can be saved into impossible situations? <laughs> Heroes. It takes bravery and boldness to do that kind of thing. You want to be a part of someone's story like that? You can you can, but it's going to require a brave move. It's going to require the help and leading of the Holy Spirit so you know who those people are you're supposed to talk to. It's going to take some wisdom to know when the moment is right and when the, when the time is right. But God will give you all of those things if you want them and if you ask for them. I want to encourage you in fact, I want to challenge you every single day this week 
to pray for spiritual eyes. When you wake up in the morning, this week specifically, pray that God would give you spiritual eyes to see someone who is hungry for him. And do not reject whoever it is that God puts on your heart. No matter how lost, how far gone, how evil, how whatever. And make a bold move to introduce them to Jesus in some way. That's a big challenge, and I know it's scary, and I know it's daunting. But you have to trust that doing what God wants you to do is the best possible thing you can do. And to think, if a life could be saved, it's worth whatever the cost or price of that may be. And we are going to need his leadership and his guidance as we do that. So let's pray together right now and ask him to right now to start the process of giving us those eyes to see the hunger that's there. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your love. First of all, just before we get to anyone else, I just want to say thank you, God, for the love that you have for me. Pray that each person who's participating in this today would be thanking you right now for the love that you have for them. That you cared enough for us that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us on the cross and pay for our sin on the cross. But that he didn't stay dead. He rose again in power and victory on the third day. And to know, God, that you would offer us salvation, not by anything we do, not by deserving it, but that you would offer us salvation by grace. And that all we have to do is put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation and we're saved. That is absolutely mind-boggling. It's hard for us to wrap our head around. God, because we, we judge people all the time, who's worthy or not, who's earned it, who hasn't. You don't do that with us. And so I thank you for that. Thank you for the hope that it gives us to know that we're your children. That we're just, we spend eternity with you. Jesus, to know that you're going to return here to earth and set things right. To know that we can trust you. To know that you've created us and you've designed us to be fulfilled and purposeful and all of that. And to give us your word so that we know how to do that. To fill us with your spirit so we know when, so that we know what to say, who to talk to, so that we, you bring the scripture to life so we can understand it. And We don't deserve any of that. You've given that to us, and we thank you for it today. We are your children, and we know that you want to bring more and more people into your family, and that includes the people that we may not think deserve it, and that we may not think will be receptive to it. And so we ask God right now for myself, for everyone who's watching and participating in this today, that you would give us spiritual eyes so that we would see what we don't already see. So we could see past the facade, past the outside, past the assumptions, past the judgments, to see what's really there in their heart, to see hunger that's there, to break down walls that may exist between us and that person so we can have that conversation to diffuse tension that may be between us so that we can show them the best thing, the thing that they need. In fact, God, we know that many people who are so angry, who are so selfish, who are so greedy, who are so prideful, often it's because they have this deep need and hunger within them and they have no idea how to fill it 
Well, we do. We do. Help us to take that message to them. To make a bold move, a brave move. To share with them what we know is the good news. That you love them. Jesus, that you died for them. That you rose again. That there is hope for their life. And that you have a plan for them too. Pray that you do that in each and every one of us. Keep us focused on it. So that we can see the same kind of transformations around us. Jesus, that we see with Zacchaeus. When you ministered to him. We love you so much, God. And we thank you that we get to do this. It is an honor and it's a privilege to do your work. It's in your name we pray. Amen.